Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 53, June 2022. The Bard of Bath. A conversation with Kevan Manwaring. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. First, a little shameless self-promotion, just to help pay the bills, you know. You may not know this, but I believe I'm the only dialect coach offering off-the-shelf pret-a-porter coaching packages for specific shows. I have a huge library of my recordings, coaching each role in several hundred plays and musicals. I speak every line, spoken or sung, demonstrating the accent or dialect of the character. I isolate key words and provide lots of side coaching and cultural context. So if you're producing Fiddler on the Roof, King and I, My Fair Lady, or any of the shows in my collection and don't have the budget to bring in a dialect coach, you should check out Dialect Recordings for Plays and Musicals under the Other Products tab on the menu bar at paulmeyer.com. Now, on with the show. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, Idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Uh, I'm very much into Lord of the Rings, which might sound a little bit nerdy, but it's true. <laughs> actually, um, whenever my semester would finish, I would actually go through an entire nine-hour-long marathon of Lord of the Rings. And when The Hobbit came out, I was extremely excited, and I was actually the first person to go in and watch it. So what do you think? If you guessed Pakistan, well done. It was Ideas Pakistan 3, contributed by Kathleen Mulligan in 2013. Thanks, Kathleen. The subject was born and raised in Islamabad. To listen to the whole sample, go to dialectarchive.com, choose the Dialects and Accents tab, then Asia, then Pakistan. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? She raised us on a farm. I mean, she would butcher a hog and we have hog head cheese and chitlins and um, um, hog bog and hog mog. And um, that's all the parts of the hog mixed together in one big pot. And then she'd make us um, clean the chitlins out and the things that come out of there, I'd never eat that again. Get the answer next time. My guest today is Dr. Kevan Manwaring. Senior Lecturer in Creative Writing at the Arts University, Bournemouth, in England, and is the author of over two dozen books, both novels and non-fiction, but is probably best known as the author of The Bardic Handbook, the complete manual for the 21st century bard. Since becoming Bard of Bath in 1998, when he won the competition for the best storyteller, poet or singer in the city, He's made the bardic tradition one of his research specialties. You're the first bard I ever knew. I just had to meet you. You are a bard. You are the bard of Bath, the bard of Bath, <laughs> the bardic academic. I had to meet a real life bard. What is a bard? Yeah, it's not a question one is asked every day, but I think it's such a useful concept as somebody who's a storyteller, a poet, a writer, an academic, somebody who uses language in all kinds of ways as a lecturer, presenter and performer. For me, it's a very useful umbrella term. It comes from the Celtic Iron Age and we first get reference to it in 
the uh, annals of the kind of invading Romans. So we have to take what they say with a little pinch of salt. But even they acknowledge that these figures were very important. They were the remembrances of their tribes. They knew mm. the genealogies of their tribes, which was very important. You know, they were kind of a living library. Um, they had these famously epic memories. They undertook a 12-year training program. By the end of that, they had hundreds of stories in their head, mm. uh, poems, songs. For every occasion, there were certain categories, for instance, wooings and weddings. And I think they used a form of memory palace to access the right kind of material for the right yes. occasion. Yes. It reminds our listeners of what a memory palace is. We get it from the Greeks uh, like so, so much, really. But the idea that you can visualise often a physical location that we know well, and you can place different bits of information in different parts of that location, almost like a hostel or hotel in which each room contains a little bit of information. And you can visualise yourself walking along that corridor, accessing the relevant room. So it's compartmentalising memory, information, and being able to access and retrieve it. But it's something that I think we can all do. And I was surprised by how much I could remember. But when you think about all the pins and passwords we have to remember on a daily basis, I mean, yes. a lot of our short-term memory is cluttered up by that stuff, but we can yeah. train our long-term memory to access all kinds of incredible yeah. things. In days and centuries gone past, all the information we had was stored in people's heads, but now they're stored in books and you feel, well, I don't need to remember that because I just open a book or go online or whatever. Even the art of memorization in school, you know, we were, we were trained to memorize long chunks of things and that was very commonplace. But I, I think memorization has been less insisted upon in recent decades. Yes, I, I think there's a drive to bring it back. There's this initiative started by Andrew Motion, our former poet laureate, called Poetry by Hearts. And the idea was to encourage school children to memorise poems from an anthology and to enter a competition first in their school and then regionally and then nationally. And I actually helped to facilitate the regional finals in Gloucestershire, where I was living at the time. And it was so impressive seeing these young people recite these poems by heart and yes, once yeah. that's in there it's it's there for life you know it's yes. a friend for life yeah absolutely i remember th chunks of shakespeare i memorized you know 50 years ago so the importance of memory obviously the the early days of of the bardic tradition um these bards memorized enormous amounts of material by heart and isn't it fun that we have we call it by heart mm -hmm. <laughs> we, mm -hmm. we know a poem by heart I love that. Yes, I think that's really important. I encourage this kind of body memory approach, really, so that you inhabit the material uh, or let it inhabit you. Yes. You sleep on it. You live with it for several days or weeks, if you can, and it becomes part of you. And, you know, you recite it random times throughout the day in a really informal way. And so it, it just or it recites natural. or it recites you as you might. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you suddenly find yourself bursting out into song or, or lyric, but it's, it, it's there, it's hardwired into you. So you're not kind of remembering it from an intellectual place, but almost like from an embodied place. And yes. that makes all the difference, I think, in terms of your voice, the authenticity of the performance. Yeah. A few years ago, I came across the, um, the fact that the um, American Indians, the indigenous folks of the USA, as it now is, had the phrase the dance that dances the dancer the idea that you're not that you're not dancing the dance it's dancing you isn't that a lovely That's lovely gorgeous. idea oh yeah. my goodness i mean there's so many 
instances when that has been the case for me it's such a pleasure when it feels like the story or the poem or the song is just coming through you not from you and you have to kind of step out the way and be fully present at the same time it's really interesting dynamic there's a time when in a way the the, the story the poem the song is in control and it's you're the channel for it channel is the word and you write in your books about the shamanic aspect of of the bardic tradition that's so fascinating and um Largely, we, I don't know, society as a whole seems to poo-poo that idea. You think it's woo-woo and, and, <laughs> and you know, druids on, on stones. And, you know, there's a lot of mockery that goes on about that ancient tradition, which underpins all British mm. poetry, after all. I mean, it, all these great British poets that we venerate have a sort of a pagan underpinning, a bardic underpinning, don't they? Certainly. I mean, we talk about the bard, Shakespeare, you know, who was obviously an actor as well as a playwright. And I think that really shows in his writing. He knew what it was like to recite such words, to hold a crowd, to project his voice Mm. and use the voice to conjure worlds. There are elements of the bardic tradition in the long literary tradition we have in these aisles, but obviously in the theatre, but also it crops up in odd ways. Like, for instance, I, I'm based at the university now. I'm very much the Bardic academic and going to be taking part in the degree show this summer. And I've been asked to do a kind of reading in that, in my full regalia, you know, the, the Bardic robes, as it were. You think about that, the chair uh, of the, the university, the degrees, the use of language. It's a very Bardic occasion. And that was certainly the case when I graduated uh, in my master's in Cardiff, at Cardiff University. And then that ceremony, the graduation ceremony, was bilingual. It was in English and Welsh, so it felt very bardic. Yes, yes. So uh, you, you've talked about the importance of, of the bard in times and places that didn't have mass literacy. Uh, go, go a little bit more into that thing that the Romans discovered and, and, and wrote about and, and told us about. What, what other functions of the bard might there be? I, I think you mentioned in your book about you know, the importance of, of praising the Lord, your your employer. Obviously, that's even true yes. today. Yeah, it's, it was almost like being a real sick fan. I think that was the kind of worst iteration of it, uh, which I think was critiqued in the Middle Ages in certain satirical verses about the minstrels who just kind of like played to their king and you yes. know, buttered him up with nice honeyed phrases. But if you go back to the core of it, I think it is very shamanic, it is very spiritual. They're tapping into this really powerful concept which I found to be the most useful concept I came across in the whole Bardic tradition and that is of the Arwen which is a Welsh word uh, meaning inspiration and this is mentioned several times in early texts you know it's what the Bard channels ideally I think you can create the opportunity the conditions for it to manifest but then it may or may not come and so that's why I always say you know the Arwen is with you or you know, it, it sometimes is and sometimes isn't. Uh, it, sure. it, you feel it when it's there in the room. Sure, and every actor knows that quality. Yeah. We call it the muse. You Absolutely, know. the muse descends. And, and, you know, it's no mistake that Tolkien called one of his characters, the, the female elf, Arwen, A-R-W-E-N, but he obviously was very aware of the original Welsh word. So I think that's a really useful concept but really it's all around us all the time it's kind of filled a potential that we can tap into at any point and um, through the bardic tradition I've come across various techniques that help you to access it mm-hmm. but I think every actor every wordsmith has their own way of accessing it and it's like 
something intangible, really. Uh, it's this field of potential. You know, I, I can't frame it in this Celtic way, but obviously it's universal. There's equivalents around the world. I think it's no coincidence that it sounds like Amen, but there are other traditions like the Buddhist Aum or Om, yes, which yes. is very similar to it as well. The important thing in, in that is that you have the three syllables, A-U-M, but also there's a fourth syllable, which is the most important one of all, and that is silence. Yes. Such a key element in any performance. Absolutely. It just occurred to me, have you been asked to train actors? The Bardic Handbook should be such a, a useful text for, for any any performer, don't you think? Oh, thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, not directly, but uh, through my job as a senior lecturer in creative writing, there's often opportunities to help train up students for various performances. I do work within the Arts University of Bournemouth, which has acting, film and theatre and, and dance mm-hmm. and so on. So it should be an obvious overlap, but it, it really happens in an official capacity. But I think it's something that anybody could benefit from. I, I have run quite a few uh, years this workshop called The Shining Word and it's very much about empowering people to access all the stuff I'm talking about and you know empower their language and this mm. can be used in any context in a professional presentation you know a TEDx talk um, a business meeting etc etc politicians could use it as well yes, yes. often they misabuse it to be honest it's there for everybody to mm-hmm. access and for me it's been so empowering to connect with that because as a school kid I was the tongue-tied introvert you know mm-hmm. and this is something that I've worked at I've made my weakness my strength in a way Paul. Fantastic so in a way that the bardic tradition which we think of as belonging to a pre-literate uh, or illiterate mm. time or place has really not lost all of its relevance in the era of mass literacy has it? Not at all. I think it's more important than ever to be able to train our brains um, to use their full potential. I mean, use a fraction of the capacity of our our minds. And, uh, you know, it's amazing how much you can learn, as like we see in plays with Shakespearean actors learning, you know, hundreds of lines. And it's incredible what you can learn. And it's such a useful skill to have. And uh, if it's not used, it, it withers away, it atrophies, like, you know, any kind of muscle. So I think it's important that we use it. And in a way, it helps us to live a more analog life in a digital age, which is no mm-hmm. bad thing. We become the movable library. Nice, nice. You wrote a wonderful book, uh, Speak Like Rain, Letters to a Young Bard. This was mm-hmm. a, a, a series of letters you wrote to your younger self, and you talk about the shamanic aspect of performance, the bardic tradition of the Celts. Uh, what's the best advice you gave yourself in that in that book that's now a few years old? Pick out the most useful advice you gave your younger okay. self. Okay, well, I mean, there's a little extra I can read if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, love, I'd love that. The most important concept, I think, out of all of it is to do with silence. In the beginning was the word, but before the beginning, there must have been silence. I believe our job as poets, paradoxically, is to let the silence speak as clearly as possible between the gaps of our words. I call this the endless sound, identifiable with the Buddhist mantra, Aum or Om, the fourth unspoken syllable being silence. It underpins everything else. It is the voice of the universe. We must learn to listen to it. What does it want us to say? 
Before we speak, we must learn to listen. This is the first lesson. We must sensitize ourselves to life, fine-tune our senses, become as clear a lens as possible to receive every detail, every impression, every sensation, every emotion as vividly as we can. Then we are ready to write. This is my poet's prayer. In silence can poetry be found. At peace, listen to the world's sound. In stillness, sense its motion. In humility, offer devotion. To honor creation, make sacred the air. This is the poet's prayer. Wonderful. Great advice you gave yourself. <laughs> I <laughs> hope I listened. <laughs> yeah, you, you made me think as I was listening to you read that of, um, of the importance of listening even to the live actor who is on, a, on the brightly lit stage with the listening place all in darkness as if this is uh, Newtonian physics and, and, um, and, and the audience are, aren't really relevant to the experience, but even the performance by an actor has to be a kind of a conversation with a silent partner, the audience, mm, that right. art of listening. So important. And then together you do it. It's, it's a kind of um, holy communion, isn't it? You're together celebrating the mass of, of, of whatever play, whatever tragedy, whatever comedy it is. If you're not listening for the unspoken response of an audience, it's not a thing that's done together. Absolutely, yes. Art happens in that space between the artist and the audience. I'm always mindful of the root of the word attend, which I like to remind my students about. It actually means to lean in. And so, you know, I encourage them to do this when they're listening. It's still an art to actually engage with a screen and to lean in. You have to kind of like contribute to it. You know, it's also called active listening, but yes. it's more than just being passive you really have to kind of step forward and invest something of yourself in, in the experience. Meet the performer halfway. Certainly the performer has to reach out as well to the audience. The, the obligation is on both sides, of course. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Aren't all great poets shamans in a sense? I think of the lake poets that's influenced me mm. so much, Coleridge and, and, and Wordsworth, uh, William Blake. He wasn't a lake poet, of course, but... Walt Whitman on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, yes. aren't, all, aren't all great poets bards in a sense, shamans in a sense? My instinct is just to cry out, yes. But I am very kind of wary about claiming to be any kind of shaman. I think there are overlaps in terms of performance, which are interesting. Certainly when I was starting out uh, on this path, I was really excited by, by the idea of the artist as a shaman, the performer as a shaman and I was influenced by people like Jim Morris so um, you know in my art college days he was very much channeling that shamanic energy in his extraordinary performances but then also art artists like Joseph Boyce who was definitely channeling the shaman but I think any artist you know has to go beyond and then bring something back and unless they can do that bring it back you know that vision has no validity no currency to the community you know it's all very well going up onto the mountain having the vision your vision quest but you've got to bring it back down and you've got to be able to communicate it so i think in that way all artists wordsmiths are connecting to that energy and they have to dance their vision in some way whatever their art film is they have to perform their vision before the community for it to be grounded to be earthed 
that the artist ideally yes is a walk between worlds I, I think and it can be quite a perilous place to be as we've seen time and time again in all the bright young things who don't quite make it you know who end up joining the 27 club like Jim Morrison you know who burn too brightly too fast nice nice tell us about the um tale of Taliesin Oh, now that's an interesting. Um, and, and you're word. going to read. You're going to read from uh, from it too. I think absolutely. When I was starting out as somebody interested in all of this, I came across this figure from Welsh tradition called Taliesin, and he really helped me to access it um, because his story is about a young boy who becomes a bard, and um, he receives his gift of the gab from the cauldron of inspiration itself, no less, uh, brewed by a kind of goddess figure in flesh called Caradwen. Caradwen. Yes, Caradwen. Isn't that a fun word to say? Oh, it is, absolutely. It's such an amazing story, and it's one I've told many times, and probably haven't got time to hear the whole thing, but actually my song of Taliesin captures the the general story in, in quintessence. I think a really interesting thing just to kind of like know is that the word Taliesin actually means shining brow. And when the young boy who became Taliesin was first discovered after he imbibed some of this forbidden potion of inspiration, the person who found him said, behold Taliesin, behold the shining brow, because from his forehead was shining this incredible light, the light Mm. of Arwen. So he had the gift of the cab for sure from a young age. And basically it became a tradition. There are many poems related to Taliesin, but we, you know, it's hard to believe that they all were written by him. There seems to have been a tra- tradition. A sort of Homeric tradition, right? Absolutely. So a Taliesinic tradition that later Welsh poets talk about, for instance, Vernon Watkins, who was a contemporary of Dylan Thomas on the Garrow Peninsula, talked about Taliesin a lot and wrote his own Taliesin poems. And this is mm. my version of what's called the Hans Taliesin, the Song of Taliesin, which is originally, originally in Welsh, but being English, I felt I, I, I should access it in my own language, but with an awareness of that kind of Welsh kind of cadence and sensibility. So I hope some of that comes through as well. So should I read it out? Mm-hmm. Please. The Song of Taliesin. I hail from the realm of the summer stars. I am the living memory of Merlin. My Lord Elfin caught me in a weir. His bard I became, behold, Taliesin. Yet this is but one branch of my ancestry. Before I was a boy as old as history, I have been a mountain hare, crazy-eyed, tail-high, I have been a silver salmon swimming upstream. I have been the king of the birds catching sky. I have been a wheaten seed of golden gleam, swallowed into the belly of the black hen by white sowry born, a helpless babe on a boundless sea, deep waters where I was also the wind's shadow, the wrathful wave upon promontory. My eyes are the fiery tears of the sun, my muse from the moon queen's cauldron. Poetry is my spear. I am a warrior of words. I know the lays of this land and the language of birds, the tongue of stone, the song of trees, and the forest of your families. I know the first name of constellations, the blessed ancestors and the undying ones. I was born when the world was still in womb. I shall be with humanity to the crack of doom. 
Proud kingdoms I've seen ebb and flow, their glories I've sung and echoed their woe. My curriculum vitae is universal and timeless. I am the quicksilver serpent of the caduceus. By fire and fur and feather and scale, I, Taliesin, bid thee hail. Bravo. That's wonderful. So exciting. So exciting. Reminds me very much of a summer's day 50 some years ago on the campus of the University of Kent at Canterbury, oh. when I discovered Walt Whitman, Song of Myself, Leaves of Grass. And there I was in the sunshine on the campus in June, perhaps, uh, and reading Song of Myself. And, you know, the Taliesin and, and Whitman, you know, they, they come from the, the same wellspring. I'm, I'm going to read a bit of Whitman, if I may. That would be lovely, Paul. And before you start, I just want to say that there was a really strong connection there, just in terms of the form, because Taliesin was writing a form of poetry uh, using a technique called anaphora, the I am style of poetry. Uh, it's there in a famous Irish poem called The Song of Emergen. I was the stag of the seven tines. I was the hill of poetry. And it's there in Song of Myself. I mean, mm -hmm. Whitman probably was very aware of this, and he yes. is definitely carrying on that Taliesinic tradition, that bardic tradition. So it'd be lovely to hear some, Paul. Okay. This is uh, stanza 24, I think. Walt Whitman, a cosmos of Manhattan the sun, turbulent, fleshy, sensual, eating, drinking, and breeding. No sentimentalist, no stander above men and women or apart from them. No more modest than immodest. Unscrew the locks from the doors. Unscrew the doors themselves from their jams. Whoever degrades another degrades me. And whatever is done or said returns at last to me. Through me, the afflatus surging and surging. Through me, the current and index. I speak the password primeval. I give the sign of democracy. By God, I will accept nothing which all cannot have their counterpart of on the same terms. Through me, many long, dumb voices, voices of the interminable generations of prisoners and slaves, voices of the diseased and despairing and of thieves and dwarfs, voices of cycles of preparation and accretion, and of the threads that connect the stars, and of wombs, and of the father stuff, and of the rights of them the others are down upon, of the deformed, trivial, flat, foolish, despised, fog in the air, beetles rolling balls of dung, through me, forbidden voices, voices of sexes and lusts, voices veiled, and I remove the veil, voices indecent, by me clarified and transfigured. I do not press my fingers across my mouth. I keep as delicate around the bowels as around the head and the heart. Copulation is no more rank to me than death is. I believe in the flesh and the appetites. Seeing, hearing, feeling are miracles, and each part and tag of me is a miracle. Divine am I inside and out, and I make holy whatever I touch or am touched from. The scent of these armpits aroma finer than prayer. This head more than churches, Bibles, and all the creeds. You can well understand why a 21-year-old guy discovering that for the first time was oh, rather thrilled that was gorgeous paul it was such a pleasure to hear that and you know i suddenly fell head over heels for walt as well and 
what I love about him is, you know, the embodied quality of his verse, but also his largesse, his magnanimity, you know, his universality. He has such a massive heart and it seemed like he wanted to embrace the world. And I absolutely love that about him. Astonishing, isn't it? There was a couple of lines in there that remind me of a poem of his that I used in my Bardic workshops, uh, which I'm sure you know as well, um, One Hour of Madness and Joy. And I absolutely love that poem. And I, I, I get, you know, my participants to declaim it out loud as a way of kind of helping them to get in touch with their own barbaric yorp, um, yeah. as in the Poet Society. But there's a line in, in One Hour of Madness and Joy, which I find really powerful, to have the gag removed from one's mouth. Mm, sure. He tapped into the Arwen for sure. Yes. And what a suitable topic this is for our podcast. You know, when I'm examining all aspects of the spoken word and you know, sometimes poetry is so confined and imprisoned on the page, but it's got to be sounded, hasn't it? It's got to be, it's got to be sounded. You're going to read from Hawk Tongue? There's a bit of context to this. So my poem, Hawk Tongue, was inspired by a tantalizing fragment of folklore recorded by the metaphysical poet Henry Vaughan. The original account was recorded by Vaughan in a letter to his cousin, the antiquarian John Aubrey, son of Wiltshire, mm. in 1694. In the letter, Vaughan discusses the Bards of Wales and their inspiration. He talks about Arwen. And then he talks about this incredible experience. He said about meeting this person on Welsh hillside who, who told him this incredible story. So I think it'd be nice just to hear Vaughan's words to start with before I share my poem. It's a very brief kind of like precy of what happened he says i was told by a very sober knowing person now dead that in his time there was a young lad fatherless and motherless so very poor that he was forced to beg but at last was taken up by a rich man that kept a great stock of sheep upon the mountains not far from the place where i now dwell who clothed him and sent him into the mountains to keep his sheep there in summer time following the sheep and looking to their lambs he fell into a deep sleep in which he dreamt that he saw a beautiful young man with a garland of green leaves upon his head and a hawk upon his fist mm. with a quiver full of arrows at his back coming towards him whistling several measures or tunes all the way at last let the hawk fly at him which he dreamt got into his mouth and inward parts and suddenly awaked in a great fear and consternation but possessed with such a vein or gift of poetry that he left the sheep and went about the country making songs upon all occasions and came to be the most famous bard in all the country mm. in this time. Isn't that extraordinary? Oh, so that's man. like right from the horse's mouth. That's the moment I capture in my poem, Hawk Tongue, which uh, if I may, I'll share with you now, yes. uh, just to conclude that a bit. I wrote this after a period of not having written poetry for a long time. And it felt like I had lost my voice. For various reasons you know i hadn't been able to connect with the arwen or, or write poetry for for a long time and then i was invited to go to this singing gathering in the north of england called soundpost and the theme was fairies and so we was all asked to contribute something so i remembered this fragment of folklore and i decided to try and write a poem about it and by tuning into that imagery of the you know the hawk flying to this boy's mouth in a way it can release my own hawk mm. and I ended up performing this from memory in the gathering and it felt like a very powerful moment for me and a kind of proof of the pudding that there was something very real here that anybody could work with. So, so this is my hawk tongue. 
you can be counting sheep when it happens. In that friable terrain between waking and sleeping, head heavy, shoulders drooping, as though laden with a woolsack. When, in a sigil of summer lightning, the beautiful youth appears, haloed with green life, golden-limbed, quiver brimming with keen-fletched darts, upon his hist a deadly weapon of talons, pinions, beak, and eyes of angry fire. You don't know whether to rise to greet him, this strange friend, welcoming foe, or flee. You have known of him all of your life, and now you are terrified, for he summons you from the slumbering hills. Fist raised, he releases his feathered prayer, death line as it swoops in for the coup de grace, straight into the O of your open mouth, too small for it, spitting plumage as it burrows down your gullet, exploding lungs, lurching stomach. Your scream becomes a shriek, and eyes burn with flame of a stolen sun. Shuddering, you flap your arms uselessly. But when you begin to speak, words like wings fly from your mouth. There we go, Hawkta. Hawkta, wonderful. Hmm. There was a line in there when the young man first appears. Could you find that one? Oh, sure. Um, this is all on um, web, the website of a journal now called Revenant, uh, Creative and Critical Studies of the Supernatural. So for that, I put together a whole special issue with a, an ethnomusicologist and folk singer called Faye Heald, uh, who's based at Sheffield Hallam University. Our special issue was called Performing Fairy. So the line when the beautiful youth appears, haloed with green life golden limbed quiver brimming with keen fletched darts such a beautiful image <laughs> and the way that he raises his fist and releases the hawk into this boy's mouth yeah you are very gifted the sound must be an echo to sense and pope would be proud of you oh this is something that um robert frost and edward thomas talked about who are great friends and for a while both lived in gloucestershire together frost and his wife wanted to live under thatch and joined the Edwardian or Georgian poet, as he was called at the time, Edward Thomas and his chums in Gloucestershire in a place called Dimmock. And for a little while, they became the Dimmock poets. There was a time when they were out walking together, Frost and Thomas, uh, across the fields of Gloucestershire, when they saw a farmer on the other side of the field and they kind of raised their hands in greeting. And the farmer raised his and called something across the meadow. And they couldn't quite catch exactly what he said, but they kind of knew exactly what he said at the same time. And Frost said, Yes, that's it. That's exactly it, what they were talking about. And it became a concept that they use called sound as sense, sound as sense. And they tried to embody that in all of their poems so that their poetry had a kind of natural cadence to it. And you can certainly mm -hmm. hear that in, in, in Frost's work, for sure. And this idea that the sound carries the meaning. Yes. And you are very insistent in your letters to your younger self uh, about mastering the form, about the discipline of the of the writing, the the, the importance of this of, of structure and discipline and technique, and not abandoning the rules, but making them your own so that you can then master them. And um, absolutely, I think you need to learn 
the form uh, before you can start to dance with it, you know, before you can start to bend and break those rules, you know, um, it's like a, a you know, musician like learning all, all the scales and stuff before they start to maybe improvise uh, like a jazz musician can do so brilliantly, but you need to have that grounding to begin with, I, I believe. And yeah, certainly an awareness I, I, of the tradition. I think from my perspective as someone who's been on the air 75 years now, uh, there's a, there's a, there's an abandonment of that necessary apprenticeship. There's the unfounded suspicion that give a young person their artistic freedom and great things will naturally result. Mm. Got to learn the techniques before you can find that freedom within the discipline. Move, moving <laughs> easy in harness, someone called it. Who was that? <laughs> Moving easy in harness. I, I don't know, but Frost always said that um, writing poetry without a traditional verse form, without meters, like playing tennis with the nets down, yeah. echoes that really well. And there's a really good quote from Robert McKee. He said at one point that anxious, inexperienced writers obey rules. Rebellious and schooled writers break rules. An artist masters the form. That's such good advice, and not just for writers, but for almost anyone who wants to master a trade. It's to do with deriving what your predecessors have found out, and it's honouring a, a tradition. Absolutely. It's like joining in a conversation that's been going on for, for centuries, really, and it's kind of rude, impolite just to start to talk over those people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, not to let them drown you out either, but to be aware of that and to stand upon the shoulders of, of giants. I think, you know, mm -hmm. it's the only respectful thing to do, you know, um, and to learn from them and then go even further. There's a lot of rejection of, of the past going on at the moment, which is mm. distressing for me. Absolutely. I think that's one thing that the bar can maybe bring into the current conversation uh, or cultural discourse. Who said thought is made in the mouth? Oh, now, I wish I could claim to know that straight off the top of my head. It does sound very familiar. You quoted it in one of your works. But regardless of who said it, it's a great thing. You probably know better than I why you, why you quoted it, what it meant to you. Thought is made in the mouth. Well, I know that until I start to write something, sometimes I don't quite know what I think. You know, sometimes that starts with me mulling around a phrase as I'm walking along, you know, like Wordsworth did, composing on the hoof. To me, it implies is that you have to embody, you have to manifest these things. You have to create your clay and out of which you can then create your David. But you have to have something tangible there. So I thought it's made in the mouth. So through the act of speaking, the act of writing, the act of painting, jamming, that is how it happens. Through those happy accidents, through playing with your material, your you know, primer material, your raw material, and out of that comes eloquence. But until you're afraid to make a bit of a mess, you know, it won't happen really. So I think on one level, it means that to me, mm. that you have to be trusting to the process. I can't think of a better way to close our conversation than that. Thought is made in the mouth. Thank mm. you for that eloquent exposition of that. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, Paul, it's been absolute pleasure feels like two bards talking across the worlds and it's been absolutely <laughs> delightful and thanks to you for joining me paul meyer and my guest kevan manwaring for more information about him please visit the webpage devoted to this episode at paulmeyer.com 
Don't forget to follow Paul My Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My guest next month is Patsy Rodenberg. We'll be talking about her forthcoming book, The Woman's Voice, next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>